This is All the Cool Parts number 6 for April 9th, 2010. And now for something completely different. Hey everybody, and welcome back to All the Cool Parts, and this week we have a really special, really cool episode. We have our very first interview ever with guitarist Kevin Gallagher, and we're going to be talking to him about uh, the recording that his avant-pop group Electric Company made, and on other topics as well, just music and the future of classical music, and what is classical music, and all kinds of things. So uh, it should be really cool, really interesting show, and let's get on with it. Before we get to Kevin's interview, there's uh, something that I wanted to talk about, and this is the absolute perfect show to bring this up and talk about it. This simple question of what is classical music? Uh, it sounds like a simple question, but it's not uh, so simple to answer. I mean, um, back in Mozart's time, you know, Mozart clearly knew what classical music was, Bach knew. Beethoven knew, Brahms knew, all these people knew clearly what classical music was in their time. And uh, what is classical music in 2010? That's not so simple. Uh, in the 20th century, you know, we had this great proliferation of musical styles. And, uh, you know, we had the rise of jazz and the rise of rock and the rise of rap and, and all these things uh, that people that weren't classical musicians were embracing. And then you had the classical musicians going a completely different way. But along the way, classical composers started to embrace these styles and, and assimilate these styles into their music. Uh, they assume, you know, way back when Gershwin was writing, he assimilated jazz. And people started assimilating rock and even hip-hop and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, more recently. And now we have... A lot of different kinds of music going on under the classical music sphere. And we have these old genre boundaries breaking down completely. So we're left with something that it's hard to say what it is. And uh, Electric Company definitely falls under that category. I mean, what is it? What is this? Is it rock? Is it progressive rock? Is it classical is it uh you know under the newly coined term avant pop uh it's kind of all of these at one it you know at the same time um you know as far as the classical part they're all classically trained musicians 
they're all playing music, written out, composed music that was composed by classical music composers. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, the sound of the music is quite different, obviously, you know, from other classical music, uh, music that you'll hear. So this is going to be a difficult one, I think, for some people that have a clear idea in their heads. This is classical music. This isn't classical music. Uh, it will require a lot of people to really open their minds and kind of do away with that old, I don't know, that that old idea of this is classical music. And this also brings up another issue that I was going to talk about. That is uh, the difference, the fundamental difference between pop music and classical music. You know, when I was studying composition as a student, I came from rock music, just like Kevin Gallagher did in my younger days. And uh, when I was older, I discovered classical music and went to music school and studied and all that stuff. And when I was studying classical music in school, I had this question you know, what's the difference between this music and, and pop music and the rock music that I grew up with? And nobody could answer the question. Uh, nobody could give me a clear answer to this question. N none of my uh, performance teachers, none of my composition instructors, nobody. Um, they would just sort of beat around the issue but didn't really have a concrete answer. So I thought about this for quite a while, and I think that I came up with an answer that satisfied at least me, and that is that classical music comes from a melodic tradition, and rock music and pop music come from a harmonic tradition. And so, so what does that mean? Um, classical music comes from this tradition where it started with Gregorian chant way, way back, a single line of sung music, this was expanded when they added another line of singing music over it. And this created this two-part counterpoint with these two different voices going on at the same time, but that worked together. Then eventually, as the uh, Renaissance period came and went on, they added more and more voices. So you had five voices, six voices, seven voices. Um, and this created counterpoint. So in other words each voice like a thread that's weaving together a tapestry. Um, in rock music and pop music, what I mean by a harmonic tradition is that when we're writing and playing this music, we chunk, chunk, chunk out chords, right? So we think in terms of chords and we think in terms of harmonic relationships, how this chord relates to this chord and how this chord moves between these two chords, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, I think that's really the fundamental difference. Now, in uh, Electron Company, in the music that you're going to hear, it contains all of these things. It's a mix of all of these things. It's got regular counterpoint going on. It's got a, a really a lot of rhythmic counterpoint going on. And it's got a lot of harmonic thinking, you know, chords. It's just it's kind of a mishmash of all these things that have come before it. Okay, so enough of that, and on to the interview. I'd like to introduce Kevin a little bit before I start the interview. Kevin started his musical life playing rock guitar, which then gave way to jazz guitar and ultimately to classical guitar. 
He studied classical guitar with Benjamin Verdery at the Wisconsin Conservatory of Music and with Sharon Isbin at the Juilliard School in New York City. He won the prestigious Guitar Foundation of America International Guitar Competition in 1993 and also the Artist International Competition that same year, and in 1994 won the American String Teachers Association. And in addition to that, he received the distinct honor in 1997 of being the only American guitarist to ever win first prize in the Francisco Tarraga competition in Spain. Kevin has performed concerts and master classes all over the world and founded this chamber rock quartet electric company. And now without further ado, Kevin's interview. All right. So we're here with uh, guitarist Kevin Gallagher and, uh, he is um well he's had a uh quite varied career you started out um as i read in your bio you started out your life playing rock guitar mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and then um moved from there to jazz guitar and then moved from there to classical guitar right uh, yeah could you talk a little bit about um just how you made that journey and then also kind of why you made this journey back to your roots playing electric guitar. Uh, Sure. You know, when I started out, uh, I was uh, 13 and a half. And uh, my first lessons were with a teacher who was adamant about reading notation. Um, So the first lesson was... Actually, now that I look back on it, it's pretty unbelievable. My first lesson was a 12-bar blues, and it was like 10 pages out of Mel Bay 1. That was my first lesson. <laughs> uh, you know, which after teaching beginners, I think that was probably pretty excessive. But he, uh-huh. but I practiced and, and got everything ready, and he just kept pushing me in terms of improvising and reading. And uh, But I remember the lessons always started off with reading, and he would just randomly pick things out, and I had to know them. And if I didn't, uh, he got pretty upset. So, uh, so reading has always been kind of part of my musical background and understanding um, how pieces are compositionally, how they look on a page. Uh, that's always been part of my background with the guitar. Um, of course, playing rock guitar, I got better and better at playing rock guitar. And um, at some point, what happened was I wanted to really explore improvisation. Um, I was still reading, but probably less so at that time. And so I started taking jazz lessons, thinking that, well, you know, if I'm going to learn how to improvise, the jazz players know it best. And I still believe that the jazz players know improvisation probably best out of everybody. Yeah. You know, in terms of Western music, at least. Um, so I studied that for a while, but I didn't really, I didn't really get uh, the bug for jazz. Like a lot of people switch over and don't really know the style, and at some point they start really listening to the style, and they start really loving the style. And I didn't really ever make that transition. I always just kind of, it was kind of like an intellectual thing for me, and I didn't really ever totally embrace it. So. At the same time, I was starting to study classical guitar, and that I did start to really love and embrace and really found a voice in. So what happened was uh, when I was going into college, I had three styles I could play pretty well, which was jazz, classical, and, of course, rock. 
I couldn't study rock. I mean, unless I went to Berkeley, but that wasn't on my uh, radar. <laughs> right. So it was either jazz or classical guitar, and I auditioned for jazz, but I didn't get in. Uh, the jazz school was William Patterson, and I didn't get in. Their their audition requirements were pretty high, and uh, they were looking for really high standards. And I just wasn't there yet, which you know was a blessing at the time, although I didn't think so. So I ended up going for classical, and uh, that's where I started to really uh, – you sink into the style and really get to understand the style. And as, at some point in my college, uh, probably about two years in, I just sold all my electrics. I just sold everything. I just saved up money for a classical. Yeah. Now let me stop you in this, uh, in the middle of your story because um, I want to sort of set up uh, kind of why I'm wondering or why I'm interested in um, the fact that you made this transition back to electric guitar because your career, you know, from when you were a classical guitar student, your career uh, ended up being basically what every classical guitar student wants, right? Right, yeah. Uh, So, you know, you went to uh, GFA, this is the Guitar Foundation of America International Competition in 93, you won that. Uh, You won several other competitions in 93, 94. You won the Targa competition in 97. And like you say on your your website, the only American classical guitarist to do so. You have a a CD released on a Naxos uh, Laureate series. Um, This is like the, the... you know, the golden path, right. For, a, for a, a classical guitarist, um, you right. know, stu- studying. So you have this career, you know, this, um, this classical guitar career. And a lot of people would be just totally content to continue just, uh, you know, on this career path. But right. at some point you decided, you know, to, you're going to go back to your roots and pick up the electric guitar again and uh, start this group electric company. So uh, what, yeah. So what made you decide to go back and do this? Well, at the time uh, when I was teaching at, um, I was teaching at a college uh, in Wisconsin uh, called Lawrence university. And I was walking down the street one day uh, in front of the music shop. And I saw this beautiful Les Paul custom uh, I don't have it anymore, but it's like cherry wine, red, and just a gorgeous guitar. And I don't know. I just I walked in and I just said, you know, I I haven't I haven't played guitar. I haven't played I hadn't played electric guitar in about ten years. And I just walked in. I said, I just can I try this guitar? I just was interested. I, you know, it was just spur of the moment. And I picked it up and like everything that I remembered came back to me and everything that. I couldn't do when I played electric guitar, I could do because just technically everything was just a lot more fluid. And I forgot how easy it was to play electric guitar in terms of pressing the strings and everything. So for me, it was like, wow, this is like riding a Porsche, you know? <laughs> um, so right then and there, I bought the guitar and uh, thought, you know, I'm going to start getting back into playing this uh, instrument. Um, but but approach it in terms of like I was always interested in working with composers, but I didn't want to work with them so much on the classical guitar. That wasn't really my interest. What my interest was was more working with them on with modern instruments. 
So the first thing I did was the first few years I started getting back into just playing electric guitar and uh, arranging pieces and working with composers and, and transcribing music. And then, of course, at at one point, I just said, you know, this is ridiculous trying to do this all on solo guitar. It, I mean, it's beautiful, but it it's, seems like a lot more work. Why don't I just get a band together and find some really great musicians to play with? And that's where the idea for the band came in. But as as far as being content or not content, I mean, that wasn't so important. The classical, like the career of classical guitar, I had been playing a lot. I've been playing a lot of concerts. That that was all fine and everything, but. That wasn't ever the point of me playing the guitar, you know, getting mm -hmm. up in front of the audience and, and taking bows. That was never the point. The point was always just the fascination with the instrument and the fascination with music. And as far as taking time off from the classical career, I mean, it, I would take gigs, but I wasn't promoting it anymore only because I just really wanted to explore this other avenue. And I knew I wasn't going to do it when I was in my 60s and 70s. I thought, well, I'll, I'll do it now. <laughs> you know? And then later on, if I want to do classical, like now I do more classical, uh, later on, you know, I, I could switch over. But I just thought, you know, I better learn this now while I can. And so I had to go through a whole period of time of studying techniques and studying sound. That was a huge study. Electric guitar sound is a huge study in itself. Yeah. Uh, and studying studying recording, studying uh, um you know how, how to work with a rock band. I mean, it, putting on different hats. So it was it was a different. It was just a, a different exploratory path. But like I said, the career thing it's very nice, but it's it's never been the point of why I played the guitar. I'd be happy playing the guitar well if I was living on the street. To be honest. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's great. Um, in fact, I find it really interesting that. Um, you know, you turned to this more modern instrument, you know, the the electric guitar, to explore. I mean, one of the points you made and one of the reasons was to explore new music and work with composers writing music now and so they can, you know, write this music for a modern instrument, you know, as opposed to this, I guess, older instrument, which would be the classical guitar. Right, yeah. And um, I just find it interesting because... I do encounter this point of view, but mostly from composers. I, you know, it's it's more rare, I think, you know, that a performer uh, or someone who's primarily a performer would come around to this this way of thinking. Uh, you know, how, how did you come to this way of thinking like, you know, I, I want to commission new music uh, from composers, but, you know, it has to be done on this modern instrument, you know, as opposed to this classical instrument that I'm playing right now, you know, that's a, yeah, yeah, it, it's a, it's a big, it's a big leap. I, I have to say, you know, for, um, especially for a lot of performers, you know, they just want to, you know, a lot of people just want to um, kind of stick to what they're doing. And even if they are commissioning a lot of new music. Uh, yeah. Well, um, Hmm. Well, how did I get to there? I, I don't know how I got to there, <laughs> but the, I would say the, the the main thing when I was when I was getting back into electric guitar and thinking, you know, I want composers to write for it, I just thought it was kind of strange that, you know, you have modern composers that don't write for modern instruments. Whereas every other modern composer from, you know, the earliest uh from the sixteenth century onward 
all those composers who were modern in their day always wrote. They always wrote for their modern instruments. I mean, Mozart started writing for forte piano. It was a modern instrument, you know. Um, when trombones came into being, I mean, and with the slide, they modern composers started to write for those instruments. Now, somewhere around the 20th century, uh, in the beginning of the 20th, 20th century, that froze. Uh, you know, the orchestral instruments became the instruments for classical or for modern composers. And then the instruments that were being developed were being uh, embraced by people who were not playing um, "quote unquote" classical music. Yeah. So there was there was a split at one point in music history, but I mean at this point, I mean I could see it maybe in the '40s, '50s, and '60s. You know, I could even the '60s. I mean, it's a bit of a stretch in my mind that it happened, but it did. Um, but nowadays, you know, everybody knows what a drum set sounds like. Everybody knows what an electric guitar sounds like. And everybody knows what keyboards can do. That's always been the case. So the idea of having composers write for modern instruments, I mean, they don't necessarily always know how to write for electric guitar, but they don't really have to. All I, What I have to do with them is they'll write a piece, for instance, that might not quite work, but I can make enough adjustments because I know the instrument and I can tell what they're going for. So, you know, but as long as they're they're going for a certain sound and I understand what they're going for, usually we can work something out, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think the main fear for most composers, they just don't know the instruments in terms of how to write for them. Uh-huh. They know the sounds. They know what a drum set sounds like. But, I mean, a lot of people just are never trained to write for drum sets. So how do you... How do you write for it? And of course, with composers, it's not just, well, I want to make this sound, but how do I translate this sound into notation? So if they don't know how to do that, they're going to shy away from it. And certainly with rock band stuff, I mean, they tend to shy away from it. Although I got to say, if I ask a composer if they'd be interested in writing for rock band, very rarely have I had someone say, no, I would never do that. They're always interested. They just don't know how to go about it. And that's where, you know, the band comes in. We can kind of help them with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Guitar too, especially, I mean, I'm a guitarist as well. And, um, man, you want to put the, uh, look of fear in uh, many composers eyes, you know, ask them to write for guitar. (laughs) A lot of, a lot of them are just really afraid to write for the instrument. And, uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, It's, 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 it's actually a very complex instrument. Guitar players don't think so, but it is very complex compared to piano or flute or something. It's, it's, it's a lot more, there's a lot more going on. Um, but anyway, but yeah, I mean, but if you can, if you're open-minded and you'll work with composers, usually they'll, They'll give it a shot, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now um, that brings, uh, you know, you you talked about uh, kind of this thing that happened in the 20th century where you had this divergence of music. You know, you talked about uh, the classical uh, composers were composing for orchestral instruments, while the rock musicians were embracing these new instruments, and it created this rift. You know, this over here yeah. is classical, this over here is rock, this over here is jazz. Everything was really delineated. Um, and one thing I'm going to talk about um, outside of the interview before the show is this uh, this question, which I've talked about uh, to many people and many students before. Uh, this question of you know what is classical unquote unquote what what is classical music 
especially right. in uh, this day, you know, in 2010. Uh, what is it? I mean, uh, uh, people, of course, bring all kinds of preconceptions to what they think classical music is and what they think it should be. And now we're seeing, you know, especially with groups like yours, um, this total breakdown of these barriers that have put, you know, been put on all these genres and everything sort of coming together. And uh, I don't know, just seeing all these um, these walls break down. So, I mean, what I don't know, what do you think? What do you think classical music is in 2010? Well, when I th- when, personally, when I think of classical music, I tend to think of music that's old. Yeah. Uh, and when I hear music, contemporary music played on on kind of you know older instruments, I mean, I think of that as separate from classical music. I I, I really don't think of that as classical music because classical music, for better or worse, we have been trained to think of it a certain way and because 99.999% of the population think of it a certain way, it's very hard to say, you know what, you're all actually incorrect. What classical music is, is it's composed music for any instrument. That, I mean, in my, in my heart, I think, you know, that's a possibility. But try to convince people at a typical classical music concert to listen to a band like mine, they're not going to do it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's because they are... Classical music, it's about a certain sound, and rock music is about a certain sound. However, within those sounds, you can you can create those sounds in many ways. It doesn't have to be the typical rock way of, okay, I'm going to come up with a chord progression and a lyric and put it together. You can create a rock sound but have composers write composed-styled music. And so I, I still think of my band as being really a rock band, but it's just the way we go about it is much more classical. And, of course, all the guys in the band are classically trained. They're all – I mean, three of them are from Juilliard and one is from a Hart School of Music. So they, they all know classical music really well. And, of course, they all have played rock music. But – so I really look at it as kind of a, a rock band. But just the way it's cre- – the music is created is more of in a classical way. But as far as what is classical music – it's a cultural phenomenon. It's not a real thing. It's a perceptual issue, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so, absolutely. It, but anyway, but, but we have, you know, many, 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 many years of cultural conditioning of how we think about music or how we think about art in general. So that's not going to change overnight. And I think anybody who's trying to stand up, as I did, um, anybody who's trying to stand up and say, look, you know, everybody now, you know, you have to listen to a rock band play composed music and you have to accept that as the next stage in classical music. I don't think that's going to fly very well. And I don't think it's necessary. I don't think, you know, you have to wave a flag like that. You know what I mean? I think you just got to get up and do what you like and enjoy it. And, and uh, if they want to call it progressive rock music, most people think of my band as progressive rock. If they want to think of it that way, that's fine. If they want to say, oh, it's like super contemporary music or amplified contemporary music, that's fine too, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. That's, okay, so that... It's not really classical music, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's... Disappointed audience if they came up to show, to hear classical music. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean that's the tough thing, you know. Um, 
are these labels? I mean, when I'm doing this podcast and I'm playing all this different stuff, you know, I'm playing Electric Company and I'm playing John Dowland and I'm playing uh, Duraflay or whatever I've done in the past. Um, you know, I have to present it in some way. You'd have to use some labels. So I just use classical music, but man, it's it's such a all encompassing term. It has so much baggage, you know, that comes yeah. along with that that uh classical music yeah anyway <laughs> um yeah labeling is hard you know we we were we were pushing the label of avant pop and i st- i still like that label because it comes from uh the modern art of the 60s where you know you'd have um you know soup cans and uh you know all the famous modern art from the 60s was was considered avant pop so i, I kind of like that term um but, you know, as far as will things like that catch on, I don't know. And, you know, I, I don't concern myself with it too much. That's for mark. That's for people interested in marketing. And, uh-huh. and I, I think things can be a lot. It's better to just be organic and just kind of see what people are perceiving things as in about 10 years. Mm-hmm. Well, um, the Avant Pop thing will bring us to the first couple excerpts that I'm going to play on the show, which are from grab it by right. uh, Jacob TV. Um, and uh, one of the, um, well, this is one of his quote unquote boom box pieces, right? Where he, right. Um, he creates this soundtrack, a sort of groove based soundtrack based on speech rhythms. Uh, and then, and then writes the music kind of around that rhythmic framework. That's exactly right. I and, mean, really, the, the piece is about the voices. Yeah. And um, one thing that I uh, – one piece of information that I couldn't find on the internet <laughs> um, was basically an explanation of the text or the, you know, spoken word stuff that he uses and, uh, you know, where it's from, who it is, and kind of what message, if any message – that um, he's trying to get across, you know, you, from this um, from this speech. Well, the the words come from Scared Straight, which was a movie from I think it was a documentary from 1979. And uh, Scared Straight uh, was, a, if people don't know it, it's a a documentary where they went into the prisons and they documented these prisoners basically intimidating young kids who were really on the verge of becoming criminals. So kids that have, had gotten into a lot of trouble in school and outside of the house, what they would do is they'd put them in this program called Scared Straight and they'd bring them to the prisons and the prisoners would sit there and basically get in their face and say, you know, when you're here, you're going to be my bitch. You know, I mean, that's kind <laughs> of how, and, and, and a lot of this, a lot of the uh, kids from this program, I think the program still is happening. But uh, I've heard that a lot of the kids, after going to the prisons, would literally go straight because they just realized that you know this is not where I want to end up. Get a kick out of that. 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 Get a kick out of that.
do have a kind of a final speech from one of the prisoners who basically says, you know, when you get into prison, you lose everything. And it's very poignant because it's kind of like you have all of this chopped up speech. You can't quite tell what, what it's, what is going on. And then at the end it's kind of like, it all gets somewhat revealed, you know, as to what the point is. Mm-hmm. And the point is, is to, embrace life that's the point so at the end the text says lose everything uh, well at the very end you it says you lose everything meaning if you come into prison you lose everything you lose everything but the, okay. but the, the very the 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 last three minutes of the piece which is really um a kind of a corral uh the last three minutes is a, a man talking about you know this guy killed himself and this guy hung himself. And when you get into prison, it's, you know, you lose everything.
Uh, the Scared Straight program sounds awesome. I have two stepkids who are teenagers, and there's a maximum security prison here in town. I think I'm going to totally take them down there and Good have idea. some prisoners get in their face. <laughs> <laughs> well, be careful. That that was a supervised program. You don't want to just throw them into the prison. <laughs> Aw, okay. I'll, I'll see you next week. You know. <laughs> the next couple excerpts that I'm going to play on the show after the Grab It excerpts are a couple excerpts from burn and um okay so you mentioned that this piece is much harder to put together than the jacob tv now from my perspective just as a listener it would seem to like it would be totally the other way around so um why was burn um just what why was it harder to put together than uh the jacob tv piece was well burn was the first piece written for us that was really one where I said, look, I don't want it to be a complete rhythm. rhythm. I didn't want it to be a total rock piece, although it does sound like a total rock piece, I have to say. But conceptually, I didn't want it to be a rock piece. In other words, I didn't want to have the drummer playing a beat and then us kind of like tightly grooving on a certain thing together. I wanted it to be much freer, much more quote-unquote contemporary uh, music-based, you know? And the issue with Burn is it. there's a lot of spots where we have to cue each other to make sure we're together, like a contemporary music ensemble. And there's one part in the piece where the bass drops out, where it's drums, keyboard, and guitar, and we're playing all these different rhythms, although we're hitting certain points in time together, but we're all playing very different rhythms. And to keep that part together live, I have the bass player conduct the band. We have to be conducted for that part. It, literally, if we're not conducted, if we don't see where the downbeat is, beat is, the rhythms are so complex on their own that if just one person gets off, the whole thing falls apart.
on this CD you get a lot of rhythmic counterpoint. And, yeah, um, that's the thing in Burn. Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah, and and this is something that um, you know you don't really hear in a typical rock band this much counterpoint going on, whether it be you know uh, rhythmic counterpoint or harmonic count- counterpoint, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, this is uh, something that uh, is really featured um, heavily in this piece, particularly. And another thing about this piece is um, uh, just from listening to it, it, it seemed like it explored kind of the sonic possibilities of the electric guitar a little bit more, you know, um, as far as using uh, feedback and right. kind, of, kind of dissonant sonorities so you can get all these real um, crunchy overtones and stuff coming out of the guitar. Was that exactly. Yeah, was that um, uh, something that you wanted to explore or was this something that just uh, that Langanella kind of... Um, no, that, that was all David's idea. David's idea was like, okay, I want the guitar to be with as much gain as possible and I want the sound to be a complete washout and I want you to have... Uh, to use a wah-wah pedal so that you can bring out the overtones because what happens in the piece is the overtones in the guitar um, will correspond with uh, the keyboard and also the drums. So sometimes some of the overtones will get colored by what the drum does at the same time and the, and what the keyboard does at the same time. And Laganella, particularly in the drums, he's, he was really fascinated with the idea of the guitar sound, the overtones of the guitar sound and the cymbal sound. So all the cymbals are absolutely marked. All the hits of the cymbals are absolutely marked and they're supposed to line up with the overtones of the guitar. So this is, this is a a typical kind of spectral. I don't know if you know what I mean by spectral music, but this is typical of spectral music where spectral music is much more about overtones and overlapping of overtones than it is about melody or harmony. It's it's about that. And that's what David wanted to incorporate that in this kind of super electric sort of way. Yeah, so I'll, I'll put a little note in the show notes um, for spectral music if anybody wants to um, read up on that. Uh, that's I save the show notes for things that would, you know, normally take a whole show to try to explain. <laughs> so I'll just, right, I'll right. just put that in the show notes if you're interested in uh, learning more about spectral music.
excerpt I'm going to play after uh, Burn is going to be Mark Mellet's Broken Glass. Right. Uh, so this piece, especially, you know, when we have this um, keyboard part come in sort of partway through, there's obviously some connection here to the uh, music of Philip Glass. I'm not oh, sure. yeah. Yeah. So, so can you talk a little bit about this? You know, why he um, chose to do this kind of I don't know if it's an homage or whatever to um to Philip Glass and uh just uh yeah just a little bit about the piece. You know, I I don't know if this is a an abs- if it's an excerpt of Glass that Mark took and and broke up. It could be. I never asked him about that. Um I mean certainly it's close enough to sounding like Glass that people would say, "Oh yeah, I can see the connection." So it might just be a, an homage or it might be a quote. I'm not sure. I don't know Glass's music that well. I mean, there's so much of it. How could anybody know it that well except for him? But right. what I would say about this piece is, I mean, this is a, this is one of the pieces where I was, when I heard it first, I thought, oh, that's a rock band piece. Because originally it was for, um, let me think, what was it originally for? Well, it was originally for two guitars, actually, two classical guitars. And then he, Mark wrote it for his consort, which has electric guitar in it. But it's like a, more of a, a mix between electric and classical instruments. And when I heard it, I thought, well, that just needs a drum part, and it's a it's a great rock tune, you know. Yeah. So when I when I took it, um, I decided, all right, well, what's the best way to just make this, you know, sound like a, a, a heavy progressive rock piece? And uh, you know, we just split up the parts and and made it work. But it's it's a little confusing. It's a hard one to memorize because it's repetitive, but it's got all these tiny little shifts in it, um, and be, and we play it pretty fast, so you can't get off. If you get off, you're done. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, could you talk a little bit about your kind of personal connection to Mellitz? And I saw on the website that you're playing in his consort. Is that right? The Mellitz consort. Yeah, Mark. Right, so Mark has a Mellitz consort, and the Mellitz consort is uh, keyboard, cello, violin, marimba, and electric guitar. And uh, I've uh, I I do the parts, uh, you know, when when he needs somebody. I mean, or if he needs me um, to come in uh, to work with other musicians to learn the parts, you know, I'll help him in that way too. But um, I've known Mark for, I don't know, 12 years, 13 years. I've always loved his music. I always thought his music was, like, accessible enough for most people and yet interesting enough for most musicians. And I think that's a, that's a nice mix to have if you're a composer. I think it's a, it's a, it's a good mix. Mm-hmm. So his music, is, it's always just reminded me of, like, really, you know, fun, uh, contemporary progressive rock music that's what it always reminded me of and so when the band came about for sure i started looking at his music to see what would work so all of these pieces are transcriptions all of the ones on the album are transcriptions of of earlier pieces that were you know for violin and cello and keyboard and this sort of thing
there's several pieces of Mark Mallets on this on this album, um, and that brings us to ZRM. Um, right. And uh, one of the interesting rhythmic features that I could just hear just listening to it, and I'm not sure how it's notated in the score, but it's this sort of four four plus seven eight plus four four plus four four sort of rhythmic pattern that goes right. on. Um, uh, could you, I don't know, just talk a little bit about this piece, um, ZRM, and uh, if you have any idea what the title means. <laughs> well, ZRM, it's, it's uh, we, I shortened it to ZRM because it's actually, it's a Romanian, it's three words in Romanian, which means happy birthday, Maria. And it was a gift to a cellist named Maria Ilich, who lives here in New York. Um she was playing and she was like, oh, I like it. And Mark was like, oh, well, I'll just, you know, I'll name it after you because it's your birthday. It happened to be her birthday. So Mark can be very flip sometimes about titles, and that's how that title came about. But because it's in Romanian, it's very hard to pronounce it, and I can't pronounce it. But the initials are ZRM. So I thought, well, ZRM sounds a lot more mean, you know. Let's use that. Um, yeah, I'm really glad you did that because anybody who's listened to all the episodes knows that I can't pronounce you know anything foreign so <laughs> right yeah well try doing it live you know on stage <laughs> trying to... so i just say zrm so um but zrm is it's it's actually it's probably the easiest piece one of the easiest ones we do because i mean the only um real technical issue with that or or getting it together is there's points where the keyboard and the band um shift beats in other words, the keyboard sounds like it's on one, and at the same time, the band sounds like it's on the end of one. So when we're playing, it's kind of like at that point, the keyboard and the band, we can't really listen to one another at, at a certain point because we'll get confused. If we follow him, we get off. If he, if he follows us, he gets off. So there are certain points in ZRM where there's this flip of the rhythm, and if you listen to it, you can you can feel it. You can feel like all of a sudden it sounds like unusual, but then it corrects itself.
Okay, so the next excerpt, excerpt number seven, uh, Lefty's Elegy. So this this piece for me, you know, as a listener, really stood out kind of from uh, the other pieces on the album. It's just got this real kind of orchestral quality to it and uh, just sort of beautiful kind of serene harmonies, melodies. It's just uh, uh, very different from the other sort of rock or groove-based pieces that are on the CD. Right, yeah. Yeah, this is really a little chamber piece, you know? And I think at this point, the drummer uh, who was, it's not our, the same drummer we have now, but um, I don't think he used any drum beats in this piece at all, uh, mm-hmm. which, you know, already for a rock band is unusual. Um, but you're right. I mean, it's it's originally, that piece I think it was for um, strings and keyboard, and so to imitate the strings, we do volume swells on the bass and the guitar. The bass is taking the cello part. The guitar is taking the violin part. And then uh, in the middle section, uh, there's uh, it's one guitar part, but I doubled it. And, and what happens is um, the doubling of the guitar part, one guitar is doing one kind of fingering, and then the other guitar is doing a different kind of fingering. So it's, it's very uneven Although we're playing the same notes, the it sounds like it kind of is kind of this uneven quality in the guitar solo, and that's done on purpose. I didn't try to make it you know totally even. I wanted it to have some unevenness to it. But it's really a little string trio. That's what that piece is. It's a, just a little string trio, and you know this is the kind of stuff that um, with the band nowadays is what I'm getting interested in is not just doing rock stuff, but also trying to find ways to play music that's much more atmospheric, um, which again, for a rock band with a drum set, is, is unusual. Next excerpt uh, in the last Mel's piece that uh, we're going to uh, hear on the CD is "Dreadlocked." Now, the one thing I uh, yeah, the one thing I noticed about this one is it seems to be kind of a constant variation on this motive. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's it's um, 
it's an eighth note motive that's in five eight. And then what he does is he adds to it, he subtracts from it. Um, he never changes the rhythm. The rhythm's always eighth notes, but the meters keep changing because he keeps extending the fragments. And this is another one where at first it's very confusing, but after a while, after hearing it a number of times, you you really can tell what's next. It's very organic. Actually, that's one of the reasons why I like Mark's music so much is because it's it, he doesn't do anything that is kind of he does surprises, he does twists, but it's never forced. You know, it's very organic. It's always kind of an interesting turn of events, but without it being a total shock. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Dreadlocked is a good example of that, where you know you have a lot of variance on this idea, and sometimes the rhythms change in such a way that you you're not quite sure where the downbeat is or the upbeat is. And then it kind of straightens itself out, and he, he plays a lot with these rhythms. I mean, when we first did it, it was a total disaster. People kept getting lost. But in <laughs> time, in, you know, in time you get it. But it's, uh, it's not an easy one to sight read because it, it looks just like it's all black. The page is completely black. It's all eighth notes. And that's that's another thing that uh, really distinguishes you guys from a typical rock band. And, you, and you'll see this uh, if you watch any of your YouTube videos of you guys, you know, playing Jacob TV or whatever, is that um, you guys are reading from music stands. You know, you're reading music. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, you know, it kind of goes against that old joke. You know, how do you get a guitarist to slow down, you know, put music in front of him? Um, no, that's, that's not a joke. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 funny because it's true, right? Um but uh <laughs> yeah, so uh this is uh um I don't, I don't even know where I'm going with that anymore. But anyway, <laughs> you guys are But yeah, no, we we use scores on stage. It's true. We we do use scores on stage. I mean, the ba- the band looks like a contemporary music ensemble on stage. We yeah. we are 
we are standing and we are, you know, I mean, we groove. I mean, we get, we get away from the stands. We look at each other and stuff. But uh, but we do have the, the scores on stage, you know. And when we uh, – it wasn't really a debut, but we played a big show here in New York uh, a few years ago. And we did a, a few pieces by a composer here named Nick Didkowski. And I announced it, you know, all right, we're going to play a few pieces by uh, Nick Didkowski. And Nick Didkowski was there. And, and it was very much like a contemporary music show, you know. So we play the first piece and, you know, with, I mean, you know, it's a rock band playing this piece. And we got done with the first one out of four that we were going to do. And when we got done with the first one, people kind of hesitated to applaud, you know, because they weren't (laughs) sure, like, is it a classical thing or is this a rock thing? And I had to go up to the mic and I said, you know, you guys can applaud. This isn't Lincoln Center, you know, and, you know, everybody laughed because there is this you know, kind of, I would, not a misunderstanding, but when you're playing in front of people that are used to going to classical music concerts, this audience kind of understood between movements you don't applaud. And, you know, for them, it was kind of like, well, you know, do we do we respect the composer and don't applaud or do we applaud in between movements? So I had to say, well, it's really more of a rock show than a classical show. I know it looks that way, but, you know, it's really more of a rock show, so you're allowed to applaud everybody had a good laugh over that because it was really awkward at one point, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm so glad that you're uh, sort of taking on these traditional classical music. uh, I don't know, etiquette things and uh, breaking them down because I can't, and personally I can't stand that it it, at a classical music concerts, you know, not clapping between movements and all this stuff. I mean, if someone comes up and, you know, plays a Bartok piano concerto and they really burn through one of the movements, I think you should clap. That's just my own feeling. But you know, if, if you want to clap, you know, you should you should clap. You know, uh, I I just don't like all this um, this etiquette. I'm so glad it's being uh, starting to be broken down. Anyway, um, well, I I think in, again it goes back to you know what is classical music. I mean, it's a cultural it's a cultural issue. You know, yeah. so it you know in America. You know, when we go out, we wear shoes on our feet. In certain countries in Africa, they don't. You know, I mean, it's it's cultural. I mean, maybe they would if they could get them. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it's a cultural thing. And, uh, you know, we're used to certain things, and, and they might be used to certain things. And that's the same between the rock audiences and the classical audiences. And so when you're doing something that's in between, I mean – it, it can definitely cause some serious confusion among people. And, you know, we, we definitely have had those situations where, you know, the, the people who are no rock music, they want to applaud. And the people that know classical music, they're not quite sure. And, you know, but that's fine. I mean, it's kind of fun to play around with that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it is. Now, um, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Nick Didkowski. And I was really, really glad when I saw the track list for the very first time of your CD that you did a piece by Didkowski on your CD because I've right. been a fan of Dr. Nerve since I don't know 87, 88 something when I was still in high school um, right. and Nick was um, kind of a pioneer of I guess you could say this avant pop sort, sort of movement um, yeah so you, could you talk a little bit about um, you know maybe how how Dr. Nerve, if at all, um, had any influence on your creation of Electric Company, and then just about his piece on the CD, I Kick My Hand. Um, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, is Electric Company, 
like a Zappa influence or is it a is it a Dikovsky influence or is it a Zorn influence? You know, and I have to say that it, it I I've never heard the heard um, those artists and said, oh yeah, I want to do something like that. I just was glad that they kind of opened the doors. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I was I was always like, and Nick is one of the guys that opened the doors. I saw Doctor Nerve play here in the 90s and I've seen them and I know Nick well you know so I see them play once in a while now and it's definitely not the same aesthetic as as uh, what Electric Company does um, I would say that Dr. Nerve is much more kind of experimental than what we do yes, you know yeah definitely um, but at the same time you know you're right I mean did when I when I saw them play for the first time and you know in the downtown new, new music scene of New York um I definitely, I mean, a seed was planted of, you know, well, th- this this route is being taken by some composers, you know, and, you know, realizing that, well, this is going to eventually, you know, spill over, and it, and it has. I mean, r- right now, the difference between some indie rock music and some minimalism music is simply marketing. There's really not that much of a difference, uh-huh. you know? Yep. Same thing with techno. Um, and as far as uh, experimental music and rock music, that also has bridged. And I would say Nick's band is kind of like that, you know. But again, a composer writing scores, uh, you know, conducting the band at times, um, having improvisation, but a lot of things being written out. That certainly uh, was a, a seed planted in my brain thinking, wow, this is this is happening, you know. Uh huh. And um, you mentioned the improvisation part. Now, um, I've seen a lot of Nick's scores. And so I'm assuming that even though I haven't seen the music to I Kick My Hand, I'm assuming this central part is uh, has in the music written guitar improvised solo or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the middle part is, is guitar solo. Yeah. And, and I just we just, you know, did a few takes in the studio and then just put it together. Yeah. So how did you approach doing this improvised uh, you know, you have you said you have a background in jazz, so you've done some improvisation. But you know, a lot of classical musicians are really uh, terrified of improvising, and um, yeah. and especially in Didkovsky's sort of <laughs> crazy musical style. You know, how did you approach doing an improvised solo that would still kind of fit within this? You know, the way the music was. You know, actually, it was really easy because when I when I underneath the solo, the band is doing all this like really tight counterpoints, very fast um, interplay between the bass and the and the keyboard, and the drummer is you know grooving along. Um, so it's it's really bubbling underneath. So the only thing that I thought would really work is kind of longer sweeps of sounds, you know, because if I tried to you know shred. I mean, it could work, but the band underneath is already bubbling along. I didn't want to interfere with that. You know, I just wanted to put something above it that, that was a lot more atmospheric, a lot more kind of lyrical. And the other thing about Nick's music and just kind of the way I like to improvise over this kind of stuff is I really like the guitar to just kind of come up with the ideas itself. In other words, I'll start off the solo, and if the guitar starts feeding back a certain way, I'll tend to follow that as opposed to try to make a solo. I tend to interact a lot more with the amplifier and the way the electric guitar just kind of naturally starts to break up. 
I really love that about the electric guitar, the fact that you hit a note and it just gradually disintegrates into noise. And so with this solo, there's a lot of that where I play a note and it just starts to disintegrate and then I play more notes and then they start to disintegrate. And the whole time the band is just kind of bubbling underneath rhythmically. And I, I thought it worked pretty well. So we did a few takes kind of like that. And then I was like, okay, let's make this, you know, we, I think we, we just did a, a couple of a small edits to make it work, you know, to make it totally fit together. But it was, yeah, it was just, you know, it wasn't jazz soloing, that's for sure. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Now that we've come to kind of the end of our excerpts from the from the CD, uh, what's the I don't know what does the future hold for Electric Company and um, for you as a as a performer? You know, with the band, um, I'm not sure what's going to happen exactly. I mean, we have uh, we we recently did a concerto. That's that's where um, we also played the ZRM with orchestra. We uh, premiered a concerto. Um, in December of 2009, uh, no, excuse me, December of 2008, and uh, we did it with a youth orchestra, and it was just so much fun, and I would love to do more of that. Um, it turned out that the composer knew electric guitar really well, um, wrote just a really bang-up piece for uh, orchestra and rock band, you know, and I, I think it was the first, you know, concerto for rock band ever written. I'm not sure, totally positive, but I think so. Interesting. Uh, and who was the composer? The composer was Ryan Gallagher. No relation to myself, but he's a he's a Juilliard guy. He's a young kid, and um, so I would like to do more of that sort of work. You know, on like larger scale works. You know, with orchestra or with theater. 
you know. Um, sure. And of course, to do to do smaller gigs is is fine too. But I would really like to use rock band in, in a in a larger context. And and doing it with orchestra is really it's a real mind trip because you know the people that go to orchestra concerts are tend to be you know orchestral listeners. They're not going there to hear a rock band, obviously. So for us to get up there and play with orchestra. It definitely turns some heads. It it can convert some people. Some people like it. Some people don't like it. But I think in the future, I think that's going to be become more and more common. These kinds of concerts. And I think, frankly, I think orchestras are going to need to at least the ones that are adventurous enough. I think they're going to need to to move more in that direction. Whether it's rock band or working with video, but ways to expand their audience. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Uh, man, they, they're going to, like you said, they're going to need to do that to just stay alive. Yeah, and the fact of the matter is, you know, we're not Metallica. Like, I understand what an or- what a conductor is doing, as does my whole band, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's it's like, you know, I think orchestras will be open to it if they have musicians that they can respect, you know? I'm not saying that Metallica isn't respectable. They're they're an amazing band. I mean, I, I grew up loving that band, and I still do. Uh, me too. Um, but, you know, but the thing is, is what, I, what I'm saying is it's just a matter of communication. Like, if, if the conductor says, well, we're going to come in on beat two, they would want to work with people, obviously, that knows what they're talking about, right. you know? Or, you know, I'm going to be able, you know, we're going to cue the drums here. Like, we... They want it's a, it's a matter of communication, and certainly, you know, communicating with conductors or other classical musicians is not a problem for you know electric company. That's not a problem. Um, so I think if they're if they work with people that understand their language, are able to bridge the gap in terms of the culture, I, I think you know everybody can have a good time. And certainly, we we had a great time playing with the youth orchestra. We had a great time working with the conductor because she grew up, you know, understanding rock music and loves classical music, wanted to put them together. And we had no problems communicating whatsoever. Everything came together real well. Yeah, that's great to hear. I mean, I think um, the classical music world now is uh, we have this generation um, like you and I who are classical musicians, classically trained, but, you know, we came from rock music. And, exactly. Yeah, and we understand rock music and, you know, uh, the barriers and everything in our mind don't exist maybe as, you know, hard and set in stone as they had in uh, previous generations. So hopefully, you know, this this trend will continue and, uh, you know, I don't see I don't see how it could not continue. Yeah. To be honest. I mean, I don't see how you could have millions of guitar players and not have at least a percentage of them you know, even if it's a small percent, uh, get involved in, you know, contemporary music, get involved in, you know, music outside of the rock world or, or the pop world and gradually, you know, doing, do more with, uh, these kinds of hybrids. I don't see how it could not be, how that's not going to happen. It's, that's what I see happening here in New York. That's what I I see happening in Amsterdam in Los Angeles, you know, so, and of course, where you are too. I mean, if you're doing this, where you're in Texas, right? I am actually in Indiana now, but I'm originally oh, from Texas. But I mean, there's going to be more and more people wanting to champion this, you know, idea. And I and I just think all the taboos are going to gradually go away. I think music is becoming more and more just kind of this 
one art form. And, and, and I, I would say that the 21st century, it looks like it's going to merge the way the 20 has separated everything. I see the 21st, everything is going to merge. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. That's that. And it's already, it's already happening quite a bit, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, well, I think we should probably stop uh, here and on that note of the future of classical music. And um, I just want to yeah. say thank you very, very much for agreeing to come on the show and uh, just talk about music and talk about this. And I think it's going to open a lot of people's eyes to, uh, you know, the possibilities of this music and, you know, it's just some things that they're not expecting uh, to hear. So, yeah, great. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure talking about music. All right, man. Uh, take care and we'll be listening to whatever you do in the future. Okay. Thanks. Anthony. <laughs> all right. Bye. bye. And that is it for all the cool parts. Number six. If you would like to learn more about Kevin or follow him and his activities, you can go to his website at www.guitar69.com um, that's guitar69.com if you'd like to follow me you can look at the show notes at allthecoolparts.blogspot.com you can also email us at allthecoolparts uh, at gmail.com you can follow me on twitter at twitter.com slash anthonylandman and you can add me on facebook And please um, keep those emails coming, and if you have any questions about any of the shows or anything related to classical music, uh, don't uh, be afraid to ask, and we'll answer those on the show. Next week, we'll return with our All the Cool Parts Idol. Uh, I originally was going to have another um, submission on this show, but the show, obviously, as you can see, ran a little bit long. So we're going to uh, push that to next week. And I hope to see you there. Have a good week, and we'll see you next time.